As the lights go down, the screen stays dark. All you hear is that sound. The sound of hoofbeats on the cobblestone. Slowly as the screen gives some breath and light to it, you see the inside of a crude wooden wheel just spinning round and round and round and round. Moments go by before it comes to a stop. And there, up and over the carriage, the camera pans. You can see the cut steps heading to the huge house, pillars on both sides of the door. And there in the darkness, the door will creak open. Light from the flames inside will now cascade out. And this distinguished gentleman appears. His skin is black. His eyes are deep set. His hair is shiny, pulled back to a perfect ponytail. A long, trim black beard with enough gray in it to let you know this guy has done some laps in life. And he is dressed. I mean, the, the type of stuff we don't see. It's, it's a garbs of linen wrapped all around him. It's in all kinds of colors, cool gold chains hanging from his neck. He's, he's pulling at the sleeves. He's, he's making sure everything is in place. And as he walks to the carriage, he opens the door and looks back at the house and then just starts to fidget. He'll walk to the door and look in and back to the carriage. He'll walk as if he's going to the door and think twice and come back to the carriage. And I've, I've noticed that wait. He's waiting for her. And minutes seem like hours, but as they pass, she appears in the light of the doorway. Her gown is exquisite. The ribbons and the gems and the jewels and the flowers that are tied to her hair. And still, after 31 years, she catches his breath. And as she makes her way to the carriage, in a kind voice. Men and them up outside. I'm afraid we're going to be late. She smiles at him and simply says, take ins. And with that, he checks himself. He runs back up the steps, opens the door. We follow his sandals as they go up the marble steps, his hand running along the smooth banister until he opens another large wooden door. And there into their bedroom suite, he runs to the dresser and he grabs both tickets. And he retraces his steps and comes back out. By that time, she's already been helped into the coach. And he jumps in, shuts the door, and sits beside her. And she just smiles. It's that little smile. Not an I told you so, but a little smile as if to say, you would be lost without me. And we both know it. And he gives that as if this isn't the only time he left the house without the tickets. And from there, we watch the coach with a lantern on both sides go down the cobblestone streets. A lone gray horse is pulling the entire entourage. It's only a block or two before they get to the center. And there it's coach after coach after coach. There's a traffic jam of sorts. As you see up ahead, there are guards. And no one is moving. There's a small conversation inside the coach. Doors open and they begin to walk. And you see with the other carriages that are parked, others are starting to walk. Every couple getting out with the most amazing garb and dress of the day. It's going to be quicker to walk than to stay bumper to bumper in traffic like this. And as they approach the huge copper gates, they are open. you, you got to understand... 
to see inside a king's palace in the 6th century BC is it's almost unheard of. It is very rare. It is the chosen few. But tonight, it is the who's who of Babylon. It is the elite. It is the government and city officials. And they've all put on their best. And as the huge gates are open, the guards stand in rank and file. Everyone must have a ticket. And everyone enters into the garden. And as they do, you can tell their eyes are filled with wonder. Plants, flowers, trees, like rarely have ever been seen. There is water flowing in streams in their garden. Small little water wheels, other little paddled features, the architecture of this that just keeps water moving at night. Torches everywhere to light up this extravaganza. There are the rarest of birds your eyes have never seen that are tethered across the branches in the garden. And you can walk up and stare in wonder at the size and the color of these species. And to the left, if it catches your attention, cages throughout the small garden walk of some of the rarest beasts that the world has to offer, things you've only heard about in tales and fables. Long before you get into the ballroom, you're already overtaken with the wealth and the opulence of this place. As much as you can spend an entire night in the garden, you want to see what's waiting inside. And as every couple slowly meanders, takes their fill, and makes their way, the large ballroom is like nothing you've ever experienced. The food and the drink, the band is on point. You're amazed by who is there, what distances many of them have had to travel. And throughout the course of the night, the drink is flowing. Every once in a while... That little voice in the back of your head reminds you the Mede and Persian army is somewhere outside of Babylon. But this gala, this is meant to show your strength, your might. There may be an enemy somewhere outside your borders, but you're Babylon. No, you're Babylon the Great. And if an enemy approaches, you throw a party for the elite. It's a flex of all flexes. And somewhere's the drink and the wine is flowing. Somewhere in the midst of the dancing as the hours go by, the king has an idea. He sends his messengers to go into the treasury. Remember, remember decades ago, there's a little podunk dot on the map called Israel? Remember on the eastern seaboard of that big whiteboard we had on the Mediterranean, that little dot on the map called Israel? Remember they had a temple? Remember they had all kinds of gold artifacts inside that temple? And remember in 605 B.C. when the great Babylonian empire in the Battle of Carchemish laid waste to the Assyrians and then chased the Egyptians? Remember they sacked your temple and they took all those gold artifacts? The king wants those brought into the party. You want another flex? Let's toast our gods out of the goblets of another god. And so the artifacts from the Hebrews, the Jewish temple, are brought in. And they drink out of them. And they toast their gods. And in the midst of this amazing assembly of people and party, a giant hand, only a hand, appears on the great wall behind them and starts to write... Mene, mene, tekel, ufsarsin. 
when it first appears, those that see, I think this is this has got to be an extraordinary act of magic. This has got to be part of the program. But as the hand starts to move and write, the king's legs give out. He's weak in the knees. He faints and he falls back in his chair. There's a gasp among the people, and everyone realizes this isn't natural. The supernatural that has not been invited has just came into the most powerful banquet in the world and has written on the wall. Belshazzar immediately scrambles all the magicians, all the sorcerers. Get someone in here to tell us what this means. And once again, Babylon has no answer. The palace is abuzz with what's going on in the main ballroom. The queen gets word, and the queen rushes in. I may be of some help. There was a man named Daniel who could interpret dreams. He's still in the kingdom. And Daniel is called for. And Daniel walks in. And the king said, I will give gold and riches to anyone that can tell me what's going on. And Daniel takes one look at the wall and says, you can keep your gold. <laughs> and I will tell you what's going on. Mene, mene. It means your days have been numbered. Your days have been counted. And, O oh, king, they have come to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed. And you have been found wanting. You don't measure up. Umparsin, division. Your land will now be divided amongst another empire. Now, the amazing thing about this night is that while this master banquet is going on, the Medo-Persian Empire had sent another group of men not into the city, but upstream from the city. They had dug trenches from the mighty Euphrates River, and they had dug large trenches down into the swampland. And with the last few shovels of dirt, they've caved into the banks. And the mighty Euphrates River now rushes across its borders and fills a swamp area, which means the river downstream loses its water, and that river flows right into Great Babylon. And the river gates that keep you from coming through now have enough room for an entire army to get into Babylon. And Cyrus the Great leads the Medo-Persian Empire into Babylon without a battle. And since all the dignitary, and since all the generals are at a drunken feast, the Persian Empire now defeats the Babylonian Empire. Read it in your history books, it's there. And on that night, Belshazzar the king is dead. He's slain. That's a long story for an introduction, but that's chapter five. We're not reading it tonight. We just did it all in story form because it's written in story form because the Bible is real people in real places with real things happening. Stop reading it as literature. Stop reading it as fable. It's real people in real places doing real things with a real God. In chapter six, Daniel now finds himself in the same place, but with an entire new empire an entire new kingdom. <laughs> what happened in Nebuchadnezzar? Did it confuse you too in the video? I'm like, where'd the guy with the curlies go? Who's this dude and what happened? That seemed rather quick. Things happened rather quick in those times. 
Nebuchadnezzar dies. His son, evil Marduk, takes over. Marduk is such an evil king, he doesn't last long. His brother-in-law kills him. His brother-in-law takes over as the Babylonian king, but he's only king for four years, and he dies. So his son takes over as king, but his son is too young to be a good king, so they have an assassination attempt, and 10 guys come in, and they beat him to death. So Nabonidus becomes king of the Babylonian Empire. Nabonidus is a pretty smart guy, and he's looking at the side of the Medo-Persian warriors and thinking... This might not be a good fight. So he decides to retire to Arabia, and he leaves his son Belshazzar in charge of Babylon. And Belshazzar decides, I'm going to throw a party to show everybody I can flex. And that's the story of the Babylonian Empire. No, I don't study this stuff. No, I didn't go to school for it. I read it just before tonight. I hope I got the names right. Look it up on your own, and let's go to chapter (laughs) 6. Chapter 6, the Persians now are in charge. If you're keeping score, we've got seven kings, two empires, and four teenagers who made a commitment in the cafeteria their freshman year at Babylon University. And in chapter 6, it pleased Darius, he's the new Persian king, although Cyrus the Great is the Persian king, but he let Darius rule the area of Babylon, so technically he is king of Babylon, and it pleased him to appoint 120 satraps, or think it as senators, to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel, and the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now at this, the other administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds, charges against Daniel for his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators... And the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, the prefects, the chapter, all the government officials, have agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree. And put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Uh, A few political things happening here. We're about to see what's going to go on. So the Persian, Mede-Persian Empire comes in through the water gates. They take over Babylon. That night, the night of his feast, Belshazzar is slain and killed. And before you know it, everyone wakes up in town and says, hey, there's new flags in the capital. (laughs) Babylon's gone. And this guy Darius sets up because there's such a huge expanse. It's the world's greatest empire at that time. I'm going to divide everything up into sections. I'm going to have senators. And then I'm going to have three prime ministers over the land. And he picks Daniel as one of them. And then he lets it known that I think Daniel is such an amazing leader, I may put him over anything. Now, here's what you got to understand about the story. And why did Judas get so upset and her jealousy and she wanted to throw the other one in the puppet den and all that's going on? Because this doesn't happen. If you go in and take over a kingdom, you kill the king. Who else do you kill? All of his leadership. (laughs) You wipe out everybody. 
You don't keep anyone in the old empire around in your government. That's a great way for a coup to happen. You wipe out all the administration. Daniel has lived such an amazing life for decades as a government official. Pretty hard to do in that position. That the new king keeps him. So all the Persians that have been waiting to get an empire, all the Persians that have been waiting to take over Babylon, now they get their positions, and they're like, you're going to let this foreigner, a slave, and a part of the old regime be one of the top three guys in the kingdom? Shut up. We got to get rid of this guy. So they all start conspiring. How do we, we got to find some fault in this. But they can't find any fault in Daniel. And the only thing they can come up with is he's known because of his God. We got to somehow make some sort of rule or law about his God. That's the only way to get this guy out. And so they come up with it. Oh, king, make a rule that no one can pray to anyone but you. It's only for 30 days. Remember, we're in a polytheistic area. We're in a polytheistic empire. There's a lot of gods and goddesses, but for 30 days, just pray to Darius. Oh, this unites the entire Middle East. This unites all of your nations. Plus, this makes you look really good. And the law of the Medes and Persians say that once a king makes a law, even the king himself cannot repeal the law. So he makes the law. And this is how the story goes. Probably the most famous story in the book of Daniel and what Daniel is known for. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrator, prefect, scepter, advisor, governors were all agreed. Oh, we already read that part. Verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about the royal decree. Did you not publish a decree during the next 30 days that anyone who prays to any god or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, well, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. And they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. However, it's the laws of the Medes and the Persians. So no matter how favored Daniel is, the king has been duped. And Daniel has to be fed to the lions. In verse 16, so the king gave the order and they brought Daniel. They threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Have you ever heard this story, by the way, and thought, who the heck has a lion's den? Is that a thing? Like, is that a thing? Do people have lion's dens? Yes. Yes. Uh, historically, many, many rulers of empires had lions as pets and lions in dens. In fact, it was the pet of choice amongst the most elites. Mike Tyson, tigers. <laughs> had tigers. That's, I mean, you, 
You walk around town with a bulldog, that's one thing. You walk around town with a tiger, bah! And kings love to hunt and trap and to get lions and have lions in dens was actually a thing in the ancient world. And it was actually a thing to take your enemies and throw them in for sport and fun and to watch the lions eat people. <laughs> the Roman Empire will make a sport of this in the first century in the Colosseums. I'm sure you've all seen and understand. And the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without entertainment, being brought to him, and he could not sleep. And at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, O king. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the dead, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and their children. Aye. And before they even reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. And they all lived happily ever after, except for those people. <laughs> and Daniel prospered during the reign of Cyrus and the Persians. And another king writes a prayer honoring the God of Daniel. It has been 66 years, seven kings, two empires. And the story is not about the kings. The story is not about the empires. The story is about four teenagers around the age of 16 or 17 that have every right to believe their God is weak and their God doesn't work and their God doesn't show up. Four teenagers who are exiled to Babylon, a land that gives them prosperity and riches. Eat what you want, drink what you want, be what you want, do what you want. And four teenagers that took a stand and said, I'm committing in my heart to live under lordship. I'm committing in my heart that who I am and what I do and where I go and what I do it with will be different, will be set apart, and I'll take that stand. Why? Why does Hume bring us up here for this incredible camp and choose this text for us every night to come in and study? Why? And what is it about four teenagers that lived the next 66 years in a commitment unwavering to this God? You've heard it said before, this isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And tonight I just want to walk you through that. And here's why. I think some of you, the last few nights, some of you since Monday morning, have had something that's not natural but something that's supernatural going on. Maybe. Maybe it wasn't a hand 
that came down and wrote on a wall. But I've had enough conversations with some of you that over the last few days, something, someone, seems just to be tapping you and saying, this is about you. This is about you. Christianity is not a religion. It is not a philosophy. It is not a system of beliefs. It's what makes Christianity different from any religion in the world, any philosophy in the world, any belief structure in the world. Every religion, no matter which one you take, whether, whether you take Hinduism, whether you take Islam, whether you take Buddhism, whether you take Confucianism, which isn't a religion but just a teaching, whether you take Taoism, every religion has the exact same basis. You are less than. You need more. You need to be better. Whether it's going through the five pillars, whether it's through meditation, whether it is self-enlightenment, self-enrichment, whether it's your works, you need to do more. You need to do better. Every religion has that commonality. You can find a nirvana, you can find a heaven, or you can be reincarnated at a higher level. They all have different outcomes, but they all say the same thing. Here's what you have to do to get better. Here's what you have to do to work harder. Here's what you have to do to be better. And Christianity stands apart and says it's not a religion. It's not a belief system. It's a relationship with a God, the God, that says you can't do better, you can't be better. This is not a book of what we have to do to get to God. This is a book of everything God has done to get to us. And this week, we've been watching four teenagers who didn't live by a religious code, didn't live by a belief system, didn't live by a philosophy. We've watched four teenagers have a relationship with a living God. And when Daniel has for 30 days, stop your belief. For 30 days, stop your religion. For 30 days, stop your rituals. No problem. But for Daniel, it's not a religion. It's not a belief. It's not a ritual. It's a relationship. Daniel goes, I meet with my God. I talk with my God. I live with my God. I don't separate that. It's not something I can put down. It's not something I can pause. This is lordship. What separates Christianity from any other belief, any other religion, is the God that calls you to live a lifestyle, is the God that says, I will live it in you and through you. You can't do it. It's not a God that says, here's what you have to do to work for him. It's a God that says, I have done everything to work for you. And here's what I'm going to ask. I want you. I want that relationship. I want you. And there is no doubt in my mind that that living God has been here since we started talking about him Monday morning. And there are some of you sitting here that have felt like there's a hand writing on my heart. And you've tried to ignore it. You've tried to get out in relationship it away. You've tried to kajabi it away. But you keep coming back in here. And something keeps saying. This is about you, not a belief system, not a philosophy, but a living God that is calling you. And tonight I want to invite you to that relationship, not a religion, not a belief, not a philosophy. And I'm not quite sure how to end and do that. I, 
See, if it was just you and me, it'd be different. But, but, but we got a room of, what is there, 900 of us in here? So I don't know which one of you I need to talk to. If it was, um, if it was afterwards and we're walking out and you're just like, hey, can you, I'd love to talk to you. And I go, dude, I'm, my voice is almost gone. Bike jumping. I don't know why I'm yelling at Gladiator and speaking. Can I get you? Can you just, you just want to sit down with me and have a smoothie? Can we just talk? And, and that's what I would do. I would, ooh. I would get you a chair <laughs> and say, if it was just you and I, I just invite you to have a seat. And I'm a chubby guy that gets tired, so I'm going to get a seat. And I'm going to get us two smoothies, one for you, one for me. What flavor do you want? Okay, mango. <laughs> I need two smoothies, one mango. And I got you a mango smoothie. I'm glad you said mango because I had orange and pink. <laughs> and I would sit down with you. And I would say, by the way, what's your name? What's your name? Thanks for hanging out this week. My name's Chris. Uh, someone walked me through this and it changed, it changed my life from being a very, very popular, funny guy who hated being alone, because when I was alone, I hated who I was with. And I couldn't tell anybody in the world that, because my personality was the funny guy. My personality is the life of the party. It's very arrogant to say, but it's the truth. Most people didn't make plans on what they're doing Friday night until they found out where I was going, because where I was going was going to be the place that you wanted to be. I love entertaining people, and I would make sure we were going to have a blast no matter what we did. And the scariest part of the night was when everyone left. And the scariest part of my world was if I was ever laying in bed by myself. Because when I was by myself, I hated who I was with. And I had an answer for everything in my life. And Babylon did not give me an answer for that. And I was not about to join religion because religion sucks. And so as you got your mango, I'm going to take my boysenberry, and I just want to read you this. You don't even need to turn. The, the two of us are just going to use my Bible. There's a book in the back called Romans. It's written by an amazing guy named Paul. I guess before I read it to you, I should tell you, Paul shouldn't be writing books in the Bible. Um, Paul's full-time job was killing Christians. He was a terrorist. He worked for the Old Testament, the beginning of the Bible, the Hebrew people. It's not that he was an evil guy. Paul loved the Old Testament God so much, he would kill anybody that was trying to destroy him. And he thought Jesus was a hoax. He thought Jesus was a myth. A guy walking around saying he's the son of God, and he didn't look or act like the son of God, according to Paul. So Paul made it a point to kill Christians. And one day as he's going to killed Christians, the risen Jesus showed up and knocked him on his butt and blinded him and said, who do you think I am? And, and Babylon didn't have an answer for that. And Paul said, I, I guess I've been mistaken. You're the son of God. And it sent his whole life in a tailspin. And once Paul had that relationship, he came back and he started telling people about Jesus, which blew the crowds away. The guy that was once the killer of Christians is now leading a Bible study. And people showed up just to see what the frick was going on. And because 
he actually met Jesus and talked with Jesus. He blew the crowd away. And because he couldn't get to the entire Roman world, he wrote a book. It's called Romans. To those he's yet to talk to. But if I could tell you everything you need to know about Jesus, it's in one book. And with just, with just you and me, Romans 1 simply says this. In verse 18, it said, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness, all wickedness of anyone who suppresses the truth by their wickedness. Because what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has already been made. So all of you are without an excuse. Paul writes chapter one and says, look, because you decided to live your life according to Babylon, outside of that umbrella of lordship we talked about last week, God is a loving God, but he has to be just, so he's got wrath, anger, punishment for all you've ever done that is wrong. And the excuse of, well, I didn't really know God or know God that exists, Paul goes, no, no, the invisible God, his characteristics and his qualities can be seen by what has already been made through creation. It, I believe somewhere there is somebody that makes tables. And you go, Chris, who are they? And I would say, I do not know. Are they tall or short? I do not know. What ethnicity are they? I do not know. Are they young or old? I do not know. Are they male or female? I do not know. How do you believe in such a person? Because I have seen the table. The table has four legs, a little crossbar right here, and a little circle holding up a bigger circle that our smoothies sit on. It's a very basic design. It's not very complex. But even the basic design of four legs, two crossbars, and a circle with a circle allows a man of my incredible intelligence to discern somewhere somebody makes tables. Can you tell me about them? No. What do they live? I don't know. How much money do they make? I don't know. What is their name? I don't know. How can you believe in such a person? Huh. I don't know. Maybe you took off hiking toward the creek and you got lost and you've hiked up in these woods and you've come across an old cabin. Door already torn off its hinges and open, weeds growing up, windows all shattered but broken glass still around the frame, spooky looking. None of you, none of you come across that cabin and go, oh, I wish I could have been here when that happened. And you're like, what happened? When the trees exploded the timber to form this. And you're like, what are you talking about? There must have been an explosion to make that cabin. No. We all see the four walls, an old roof, what used to be a door. Somebody made that. Paul writes in chapter 1, 
Science's Big Bang was a voice of God that spoke things into being. You can look at the incredible design and intricacies of this planet and our life, of your ears right now that hear my voice, take vibrations inside, turn it into thoughts, words, constants, vowels, syllables, where you track a language with me in real time as I speak it. Your eyes, which I don't know how it works, takes these bazillion megapixels, turns everything, but somehow they're upside down or flips it up or turns. I don't know. I don't know. I just use them. I just use them. And Paul writes chapter 1. There is a creator. Therefore, you have lived your life outside of the creator's desire and will. You've gone Babylon. There's, there's wrath for that. There's, there's a punishment for that. What we hit last night, what the Bible calls sin, in chapter 3, in verse 21, it simply says this. But now, a righteousness from God, not the law, not by doing right things, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The entire Old Testament was building up to perfection. You have to be perfect. You have to be perfect. You have to be perfect. And none of us can be perfect. No way I can even try perfect. I'm not even going to begin perfect. He goes, but now there's a righteous, there's a perfect, and it's not from you. This is a righteousness from God. comes through the faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. But you can be justified, made right freely by his grace through the redemption that came from Christ Jesus. What does God expect? Perfection. What can you never do? Perfection. Religion is trying to be something you can never be. But now, God said, I'll make you perfect. I'll make you right. I'll do for you what you cannot do. I will send my son, and his life will forgive you, and his life in you will be your righteousness. You're perfect. If it was just you and me, I would just go to, Chapter 5, because right now you would say, but I don't understand that. I don't, I don't deserve that kind of love. I don't deserve that. And I go, you're right. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. Why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. You can't live up to it. God did it for you. If right now, you just had this amazing awakening. He said, for the rest of my life, I will never sin, and I will be perfect. And for the rest of your life, you walk out this door, and you never do a thing wrong. You're absolutely perfect. You still can't make up for all the wrong you've already done. We looked at last night. What does one of the things sin does? It breaks a relationship with the holy God. You still have the faults that you're carried in here. But let me tell you the beauty of this. If you walk out of here, and you can become perfect in some way all on your own. You will never, ever get more of the love for God than you have right now. He loved you while you were a sinner. He did this to have a relationship with you, not to start a religion. That why we were still sinners, he said, I'll send my son to die for you. Now, this is where you and I have got to call a timeout. How's the mango smoothie, by the way, okay? Chubby guy's breaking a sweat. I need to pour into this one. But I'm looking at it, it's going, why some dude 2,000 years ago nailed to a pole? What does that have to do with me? What does that have to do with me? Well, if it was some guy that died 2,000 years ago, it has nothing to do with you. 
But if it was truly the Son of God that came to earth to pay a price for you. Oh, turn to chapter 6. See, chapter 6, verse 23, simply says this. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why did Jesus have to die? Because if you die with sin, you'll be forever separated from God. You do realize there can't be sin in heaven. There can't be sin in heaven. If there's sin in heaven, it ain't heaven. If God allows a bunch of sinners in heaven, we'll turn it into Vegas within three months. We just will. We'll screw up heaven, and he has to go work on another one. We mess up everything. So God goes, that's it. No sin in heaven. Well, then we're all lost. And the Bible goes, you are. Your wages, what you earn by sinning is separation from this religiousness. But the gift of God can wipe that out and give you eternal life. You see, from from Romans 6, I would just invite you to turn to Romans 10. And Romans 10 just says this, starting at verse 9. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is written with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the Bible says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile. The same God is God of all and richly blesses anyone who calls on him and everyone who calls on the name of Lord will be saved. Here's what separates Christianity from a belief, a religion, a philosophy. There's only one man in all of history who claimed to be the son of God, who called his own death and called his own resurrection, who told his followers three different times, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to hand myself over to these guys. I'm going to allow them to beat me. I'm going to allow them to mock me. And I'm going to allow them to spit on me. And I'm going to allow them to torture me. And then I'm going to allow them to nail me to a cross. He even called how he was going to die. And he said, then three days later, I'm going to pull off Easter. And if I don't pull off Easter, you don't buy a word of this. I'm just another lunatic, religious fanatic. But when you see me walk out of my grave, you will know I am not a man, I am not a teacher, I am not a prophet. Buddha, a great teacher, great man, great prophet, never claimed to be the son of God, never claimed to come from God, never rose again. Muhammad, great teacher, great prophet, never claimed to be the son of God, never claimed to rise from the dead, never did rise from the dead. Confucius, great teacher, never claimed to be a prophet, Never claimed to come from God, never claimed to rise from the dead, never did rise from the dead. Hinduism, millions of gods and goddesses, not a single son of God who came to earth, who claimed to be God, who died and rose again. There is one man in all of human history. And 2,000 years later, you can't get Christmas off of your school holiday schedule. 2,000 years later, we can't get Easter off of our calendar. 2,000 years later, we can't get Thanksgiving because a group of Christians pursued a different country to worship this God in freedom. And in the worst winter of their life, watching the majority of their friends die, they come back and they set a table to give thanks. 2,000 years later, he is Savior or he is swear word. Both of those amaze me. 
How incredible do you have to be to be a cuss word 2,000 years after your death? Have you ever thought of that? We don't curse by any other name. You've never been walking through your room at night and stubbed your toe, and you're like, Benjamin Franklin, oh! Your mom never came in and go, young man, we don't BF anything in our house. <laughs> Who do you curse by? We will Christ, Jesus Christ, goddamn anything. There is something in his name that 2,000 years later still carries power. And for the last five days, there's been a handwriting on you saying this is not a religion, this is not a belief, this is not a philosophy. There is a creator that once again calls teenagers to stand and follow him. But Babylon is sexy, and Babylon feeds my desires, and Babylon feeds my heart, and Babylon owns my head, and it owns my entertainment, and it owns my social media, and I eat at Babylon's table daily. And something this week had been writing on your heart. I want you. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. You will never live up to it. And you will never achieve perfection. It's a God that said, I will do all that for you. And if I can't pull off Easter, just put me in a category of religions. It is July 6th, 2023. Have you ever asked yourself, to what? To what? Our entire dating system still screams 2,023 years ago. He pulled it off. He pulled it off. He split time. And I don't get it. I don't understand it. But in spite of who you are and what you've gone through and what you've done, he just wants you. Because he made you. And you are his. And he made you for a purpose. And he's lost you. And like any great dad, he's more than willing to buy you back. But there's a sin issue we talked about last night that stands in the way. And he said, I'll cover that on the cross. I'll take it out of my son so you don't have to feel my wrath. But open your eyes. You spin on a hurling ball of water, mud, rock, and lava. Because there is a designer behind this design, a creator behind creation, an artist behind the artistry. And you're made in his image because he wants to adopt you as son or daughter. And so, yes, we will read a story from 2,600 years ago of four teenagers who decided to step into relationship and found something worth standing for, worth bowing for, and worth getting thrown into a pit for if that's what it takes. Because I love being alone at night. I now really like who I am. I hate what I've done, but I can face every single act and say he took care of it all. And dorky, chubby, 54-year-old, gray beard, slightly balding, idiot dude like me 
He cannot, will not take his hands, his eyes off of me because I'm his son. I'm his little dude. And I go through life holding the giant hand of the creator of the universe. And I get to call him dad. And Babylon, with all of its desires and lust, cannot touch that. And Daniel said, I will pray. Because this is how I talk to dad. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, amidst our students, I will stand. Because what God has done for me, I'm not about to bow to anything else. And I wonder about you. You haven't touched much of the smoothie, so I'll just let you go by telling you Romans 12 says, therefore, because of everything God has done for us, I'm going to urge you, in view of God's mercy, just to offer your body back as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is just your act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, Babylon, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you're going to be able to test and approve what God's will is for your life, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Therefore, every day you just realize I'm owned by somebody else. I'm bought with a price. So you can have my football team, my track team, you can have my band, you can have my drama club, you can have my gifts, you can have my personality, you can have my relationship with my parent or my siblings. It's yours. I'm going to turn the faucet off on Babylon. And I'm going to allow you to have my mind and my heart. And show me what your will is. Show me why you made me. Show me what you want for my life. I'm all in. And if it was just you and me, and we had those nine minutes, I would have just told you those verses. And I would have just asked you, so what do you want to do? There's three decisions you have. You may be sitting there going, I've, I've never given my life to this God. I've never asked forgiveness and allowed him to take the penalty. I've never committed my life to live with him and ask him into my life. I would say, would you want to do that right now? Do you want to accept that right now? Or, or maybe you're like, Chris, I've, I've said that before. I've done that, but I am so screwed up with Babylon right now. I got a lot of things. I just need to, I go, the word you're looking for is repent. It's a big churchy word. But you just need to confess, ask forgiveness, and go a different direction. Is that what you want to do? Or, or maybe the third option, you're like, man, this was good, but it's long, and I need to get out of here. <laughs> I went, thanks. The drink's still on me. And maybe because you've got things settled and you're good. Or maybe you're just not interested. But either way, you, you can go. So here's how we're going to do this. I don't know which 1, 2, 3, 4, 15, 20 of you it is. So I'm going to ask you to do what they did in chapter 3. I'm just going to count down from 3. I'm just going to go 3, 2, 1, stand. And when I do that, 
If you're like, I, I want to do one of those, I either want to accept God for the first time in my life, I need to give my life to him, or I'm standing, I'm not going to say it out loud, but I'm standing because there's junk in my life I just got to get rid of and confess. I'm tired of trying to live in both worlds because I know you can. And for one of those two reasons, I'm just going to ask you to stand. But here's, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You're going to stand. I'm going to pray for you for whatever's going on, but that doesn't make a decision for you. I'm just going to pray for you. And I'm going to ask everyone that didn't stand, when I'm done with my prayer, for you just to get up as fast as you can and leave without saying a word. And if your friend next to you stood, they're committing to sitting back down and staying here. And one of your counselors, youth pastor, or staff is going to come up to you and go, what do you want to do? You want to say a prayer? You want to accept Jesus in your heart tonight? Or you want to ask forgiveness? By standing, you're committing. I'm about to sit down and let everyone leave because I've got a choice that I want to make right now with the creator of the table, the cabin, the universe. <laughs> and that's how we end tonight. I don't draw it out. But if you felt like this week, somebody has been telling you, this is for you. And tonight you wanted to do something with it because you know who that is. I'm just going to ask you to stand. It takes courage. But if you can't stand right now in front of your friends, you know we're near ready to make a decision to stand. Three, two, one. Just stand. Father, I thank you for the courage of every man and woman right now just to stand. I thank you, God, for their courage to say, I want to do something with this living God. As everyone's about to get out of here without saying a word, God, may they sit back down. May they talk with a youth pastor, a counselor, staff, someone, and say, this is what I want to do. Can you do this prayer with me? God, may tonight, may you meet them in a new way, a fresh way, not a natural way, but a supernatural way. May your spirit bring forgiveness, Father God, and restore or renew or put your spirit in them. God, there is no doubt in my mind there are some that are sitting right now that wish they were standing. May they either stand right now or when everyone empties, may they turn around and come right back in here and do whatever they need to do with you. God, may you help the rest of us leave here quietly, especially the balcony. It's going to take a while to get out. Nothing is open in camp right now. There's no other place to go. We've done a late night, a late chapel, so we're just going back to our cabins, guys. You're just leaving here and going right back to your cabins. And may God, you help us do that quietly. And not interrupt what you're doing with those that are standing now. Thank you, God, for their courage, their decision. May you meet them in the conversation that's about to happen. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to reverse this. If you stand, sit. If you're sitting, stand. Can you exit quietly? You're heading to your cabins. Please keep the noise away from the doors outside. Balcony, your patience. Youth pastors, youth workers, there are a lot of people sitting in the balcony. So see if you have students up there that aren't with you or students, if you're sitting in the balcony and your counselor or youth pastor is down here, you may want to come down here and meet with them. Let everyone exit first. 
We'll find out where you are. Just sit where you are.